So today um, we're going to take a little break from the normal series in 1 Corinthians and we're going to actually start a new series in English. So there's, it's, it's okay that you're here, but I'm, I was planning to preach in English anyway. I'm going to preach on a topic and the topic is the attributes of God and we're going to do that in English. So for the next year, maybe a little bit more than that, we'll go through a number of attributes of God. And today, I was thinking that we we're going to make it through the first attribute, but then I realized I had so much in my introduction that's, that this, this first message will only be an introduction to this, this topic, the attributes of God. So why do we begin now a, a new series and... Uh, Take a break from expositional preaching, expositional going through the first Corinthians as I do normally when I preach. Well, I, I have a number of reasons why we will have a new series. And the first reason is that we would know who God is, of course. That is maybe the most important reason that we would know who God is. Because if you don't know him, you don't know who to worship whom to worship, or even worse, you will end up worshipping a false god, an idol, someone that is not the god of the Bible, which we can see among those who claim to be Christians, who take the name Christian to them, but in their worship, in what they say, in what they do, worship something else, a, a god of their own imagination. So that is the first and most important reason why I want to go through this topic, the attributes of God, that we would know who God is. That will be a theme throughout this whole series. Who are you, God? Now, the second reason is to know who we are, who we are in relation to the God of the Bible. Because knowing who God is helps us understand who we are in relation to to him when we know that god is holy that god is sinless that god is righteous that god requires payment for sins committed that god's wrath will be poured out on all unrighteousness then we will understand that we as human beings are not holy are not righteous are not good all these things, when we look at the attributes of God, we will see how we fall short of all that is found within God. All that is found within the name of God. So, it is crucial for saving knowledge to know who God is and to know who you are. If you know that you are a sinner and God is holy, you know you need a savior. You cannot, by your own strength, come to God, be reconciled to God. So we need to understand who God is to know who we are. And the third reason would be that we need to have a, a biblical understanding, of course, of who God is. Something what the Bible says, not an understanding of our own thoughts, of our um, cleverness, but an understanding of God that is coming from the Bible. 
that is robust, that, would, that will not shift, that will not be thrown around by every wind of doctrine, so that when people come to ask us, who do you believe in? Who is he? Who is God? We would be able to answer from the Bible, this is the God I believe in. That's the third reason, to have a biblical and robust understanding of who God is, so that we can answer those who ask us. And the fourth reason is to help us boast in the Lord. To help us boast in the Lord. The people of God are not to find happiness or, or um, peace or confidence in, in the riches, the wisdom, the glories, the mighty of this world, but solely in God, solely in the Lord. We find true happiness, find true peace, confidence, riches only in God, in Him alone. And we do that by knowing Him. The prophet Jeremiah said, Let him who boasts, boasts, Boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Knows me. Understanding and knowing God. And uh, the fifth and last reason why I want to do this series is, that, is so that we might be strong. So that we might be strong. That's the, the, one of the last exhortations that that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthians in the first letter to the Corinthians is for them to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. They are to be strong. They are not to be weak. They are to be as he says, be like men or be mature. Be mature in the Lord. Be strong in him. Don't be strong in your muscles. Don't be strong in your own wisdom. Be strong in God. Be strong in him. And a very similar exhortation can be found in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Of his might. So how is this done? By knowing God. Knowing who he is. The prophet Daniel has said, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. So, who is God? Who is the God of the Bible? Does he exist? That's probably the first question you would encounter does god of the bible exist well you cannot read the first verse the very first words of the bible without encountering the words in the beginning god in the beginning god he is there immediately in the very first words he appears god when there was nothing else god was no creation, 
No man, no earth, no space, no nothing but God. Creation has a beginning. It will have an end. This creation at least. But God does not have a beginning and end. He exists from all everlasting and will exist to all future everlasting. He will always be. He always is. That is his very name. I am. He always is. There is no no, no past to him, no future to him. He always is. We as human, human beings has a past, have a future. And we as believers have a, a future together with our Lord in all eternity. But God does not have a past and a future. He always is. In the beginning, God That's to say, in the beginning, when time began, God, you could just remove time and there will still be God. You can remove everything that is created and there will still be God. He always is. We don't exist always, but he exists. We are so inferior to him. That we can only know about him through that which he has revealed to us in his word. His self-revelation. Our understanding, our minds will not know him. But only through his ordained word. Yet there are of course those that always will deny the existence of God. And the Bible calls them fools. Psalm 53 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. It is indeed foolishness. Even even the most childlike minds understand that everything cannot come out of nothing. You cannot have existence. You cannot have creation. You cannot have materia. Time, anything, come out of nothing. When did everything start? Go and ask the the smartest atheist you find. And he will say that at some point there was nothing. And all came out of that nothing. That's a foolish statement. I've heard it. I've heard, uh, what's his name? Richard Dawkins say that. We must define nothing. That's foolishness. Defined nothing. Nothing is nothing, Mr. Dawkins, if you didn't know that. And everything cannot come out of nothing. A child would understand that. But a learned man like Dr. Dawkins, he will go on to try to define nothing. Foolishness. Foolishness. It defies logic. Everybody understands that a Bible, a book, cannot just come into existence Unless God creates it, of course. It cannot just drop out of the sky, out of thin air. It comes from materia. It comes, you, you, you take the pages, it comes from a tree that has, has grown somewhere. All that exists comes from something else. There's always something behind it. Foolishness to think that everything can come out of nothing. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about this next time. We'll talk about God's existence and self-existence in the first real, uh, real uh, session on this, this topic, the first real preaching on this topic. We'll go through the first attribute. Now this time, I, again, I just want to do a little bit of introduction or we'll be here way too long and we'll be kicked out by the, the people who own this building. So first, we need to have a little bit understanding of what it is to study the attributes of God, what it means, what, is, what an attribute is, what are the attributes we're going to study, and so forth. So first, what is an attribute of God? Let's start there. And uh, according to the Cambridge Online Dictionary, a attrib- an attribute is a quality or characteristic that someone or something has. So the attributes refers or refer to the qualities that belongs to a person. It's a characteristic of that person. It's a feature, something that is that makes that person up, that makes up that person. I am a man. I am a Swedish-speaking Finn. I am a preacher. All those are characteristics of me that are attributes of me. So it's something you attribute to another person. President of Finland is a man. He's a, oh, I don't know how old he is, 60-something, maybe 70. He is a, he's a Finnish-speaking native. Those are attributes of the president of Finland. He's married, I believe, yes. He's married, he's a married man, he has children, he's a father. Those are attributes of a person. And when he comes to God, it refers to his perfections. As in, uh, as contrary to us, God's attributes are always called perfection because there is nothing imperfect within God. All his attributes are perfect. We have some good qualities, we have some good characteristics, but God's attributes, God's qualities, God's characteristics are always good and always perfect. Therefore, you call them the perfections of God. And uh, they are also unique to him. The attributes of God are unique to him. We will just in a moment talk about communicable and uh, incommunicable attributes. And uh, it's a way of dividing the attributes of God into different categories. And the, the uh, communicable attributes will then refer to attributes that we in some sense share with him. So that we, we are in some, some sense good, but God is perfectly good. We have some love, but God has perfect love. We have some knowledge and some wisdom, God, but God has perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom. And then there are the incommunicable, which is of course attributes that are not found in us in any sense, like uh, omnipresence, everywhere present, that is unique to God. And all the attributes that we're going to study are unique to him. He's perfectly loving, perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and so forth. 
So the attributes of God uniquely define who God is. And second, we need to have an understanding of, of the method of identifying these attributes of God because throughout church history, there's been different way of trying to, to um, understand who God is, to put what we know about him into different categories, break it down into a systematic way so that we, with our limited understanding, might understand something about him. And uh, I was actually planning on going a little bit deeper into this, but I think I'll skip a few things here because it, it gets kind of philosophical and it's not necessarily helpful to us, even though it is good to understand these different ways that has shaped Christians, shaped Christian theology throughout history, especially the scholastic methods, which were in the Middle Ages, the later Middle Ages, some theologians um, developed a theology in the Western universities that, uh, that was marked by a commitment to explore and state rationally, rationally, the full content of individual Christian doctrine. They tried to use their rational minds, logic, to try to derive to work out, develop Christian theology, Christian doctrines. And it also tended to include questions of philosophy within it. So these scholastic methods were highly derived from human capabilities, human ability, our ability to understand, our ability to think rationally, to think logically about what we see, about God, about our observation of creation, and from that derive a knowledge of God. And then there are also the modern methods, as they are called, or experimental theologies, another name for it, that are then based on human observations and reasoning. Reasoning, they they try to use these methods from, uh, from experience. It's called the way of intuition, the way of need, the way of action. So that they try to find out who God is by intuition. You know what intuition is? It's the, the, the immediate action you take when, when you're faced with a situation without actually processing all the information that you, that you, um, that you receive, that you take in. You take an immediate action, that's intuition. So they, they try from the way of intuition to, to start with, with our intuition and see how God as the perfect, the, the perfect first course, cause, not course, first, perfect first cause would have to be from our intuition. And then they have the way of need. Man's need, God is something that meets man's need rather than we are there to worship him. So they start with what we have, what our needs are, and therefore they form an understanding around that need, the way of need. And then the way of action is they try to find out God's attribute, attributes by the way he acts in creation. 
from what we can see that God does in creation. He allows evil to exist. He allows good to exist. And from that, form an understanding of who God is. But we will not use these methods, of course. We will use the method that God has ordained. The Holy Scriptures. God's own word. God's own testimony about himself. To find out who God is. Why? Well, to start with something else than what God has said is to start with creation. It is to start with that which is not God. It is to rely on, on man's ability, on man's thinking, on man's wisdom. It's to build a concept of God from a human perspective, rather from a divine perspective. And why is this problematic? Well, of course, it is man-centered. It leads to man-centered theology. It starts with man's needs, man's views. It starts with us. It starts with something that is already tainted by sin. It starts with an understanding that is in opposition to God. We have, as we have been going through 1 Corinthians, we have, we have been talking about this, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. And Paul has been so very hard on that fact that the Corinthians are turning away from the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God, to wisdom of man, worldly wisdom. We know that the cross of Christ, Christ crucified, is as foolishness to the world. Foolishness. It will be foolishness. They will mock us. They will hate us. They will laugh at us when we say that we believe in a crucified Messiah. But this is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom from above. This is the wisdom that saves people. While this wisdom of man, the wisdom of all intelligence in the world, of all the smartest brains that ever existed, will pass away. It is not everlasting. It is part of creation. So, we will rely on that which God has revealed about himself. We will rely on the word of God to find out who God is, his attributes. Who are you, God? And third, the third thing we need to understand is uh, a little bit about the divisions of these attributes. And don't want to spend too much time on this, this as well because it gets very... Um, very philosophical quickly. Theologians love to put things into different boxes. They love to put it into different categories and we're all going to put these things here and put these things here and this doesn't always, of course, necessarily 
give a, a, a fair representation of that which they try to, to define. But they love to do this. There are many ways of, of trying to divide these attributes into different categories. We have the negative and the positive attributes. We have uh, the natural and the moral, the absolute and the relative. Then we have, uh, as, I, as I mentioned already, the incommunicable and the communicable attributes of God. And these are maybe the only ones that I will mention a little bit more. And I already mentioned that they are incommunicable, are those attributes which are completely unique to God, that we cannot find in us. We don't have omnipresence, omnipotence, and so forth. We don't have, have uh, immutability. We are very mutable creatures. But God has immutability. He has uh, omnipresence, he has infinity within himself. These are all incommunicable, something that is only found in God. And again, communicable attributes are those which we in some sense share with God. We have some love, he has perfect love. We have some goodness, he has perfect goodness. Those are different ways of dividing the attributes of God. And fourth, um, last, we will, I will mention which attributes we're going to study. Which attributes. And this is, of course, something that, at least that I have, have uh, personally made. You could, you could make a way longer list if you wanted to. You could make a, a list of 40, 50, 60 attributes. If you, if, you, if you really wanted to take every single little attribute that you found in Scripture. But I have for the sake of keeping it somewhat concise and not springing it out on many years, just taking in a few, a few attributes. And I have 14 attributes, actually. So what are the attributes we're going to study? The first attribute, as I mentioned already, is the existence and self-existence of God. Existence, that God actually exists, and self-existence, that God is the only one who has self-existence within him. That he's the only one who, who doesn't have a creator, doesn't have someone else giving him existence. We owe our existence to God, to the creator, but he does not have a creator. He is fully and perfectly self-existent. And then we'll have, second attribute will be the immutability of God which then refers to his, his, uh, the fact that he never changes. God is always the same. He is always the same God, whether he is in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, whether he is in creation or in glorification. He is always the same God. And we'll try to work out a few different issues with that that we read about in Scripture when it says that God regretted making man for example that does mean does that mean that he changed we'll look at that in in that attribute and third we'll have the spirituality of god which means of course that god is a spirit and what it means to worship god in truth and spirit jesus said you are to worship god in truth and spirit what does it mean to worship a spirit God. What does it mean that God is a spirit? And fourth, we'll have the um, infinity of God, which is a pretty large attribute, actually. It com comprises uh, his eternity, 
He has existed for all eternity. There is no beginning or end in time. And it also comprises immensity. He is everywhere present. There is no part of space, part of creation where God is not. He is present everywhere. Everywhere in creation. Both in time and in space. So that's the infinity of God. And then we'll have the omniscience of God, which is his perfect knowledge. His perfect knowledge of himself as the only one who has perfect knowledge of God. And his perfect knowledge of everything in creation. His omniscience. Then we'll have six, uh, the uh, omnipotence of God. His ability to do anything that is consistent with his nature. That God is able to do anything means that he can do anything that is consistent with who he is. God is sinless, therefore God cannot sin, but he's still omnipotent. But it is omnipotence in accordance with who he is. And then seventh, we have the holiness of God. We'll talk about how God is perfectly sinless. There is no sin in God. When the angels, we, we read about the angels worshipping before God, they say, holy, holy, holy. God is a perfect holy being. Eighth, we have the sovereignty of God, which means that God is, of course, sovereign in all things. We talk about that a lot as Calvinists, that he's sovereign in um, salvation, and we have our disagreements with our Armenian brothers who, who want to, to uh, say that man has a, a choice in salvation, but we are very strong on the fact that God is sovereign. God elects those he saves. It is God's choice only. But the sovereignty of God is not only salvation, it is sovereignty in all things, in everything that happened. Sovereignty of God. And ninth, we'll have the truthfulness of God. That God is, of course, truth. Again, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? We need to understand what truth is and that God is perfectly truthful. And the tenth attribute will be the wisdom of God. That he has um, perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully to accomplish all his good pleasures. He does not only have perfect knowledge, omniscience, but he also has a, a, a perfect knowledge of how to act, to accomplish all that which is in his good pleasure, which is in that which he has ordained. He accomplishes all which he has ordained. He has all wisdom. Then we have the goodness of God, which is being good to everyone and everything. And we'll see a different, the difference between God, how God is good to all mankind and how he's specifically good or especially good to his people. Good in different ways. He lets it rain on the unrighteous and the righteous. He gives us air to breathe, food to eat. But he is especially good to his people. He provides for them in an especial way. So we'll look at the goodness of God. That God is truly good. The only one who is truly good. 
Then we'll have the love of God. But when we have our name, agape, we'll see how the love of God transcends everything, how he, he is the perfect love, how he loves sacrificially, giving out of, of himself before we ever did something to him. He loves sinners when they are sinners, not when they believe in him. Also, he also loves us as believers, of course, but he loves us before we do anything to please him. He also has affections for us. We, we tend sometimes to think that God becomes this, this uh, emotionless, feelingless creature, just a, a statue maybe. But God actually has affections for his people. The Bible says that he has strong affections for those he loves. His people. So we'll look at the love of God. That's number 12. Number 13 will be the righteousness of God, which refers to his justice, his perfect justice. He, he, he requires payment for sin. And he also acquits those for which payment has been made in Christ Jesus. So that the righteousness of God will help us understand salvation and why we need a savior. And then lastly, the, the last thing we'll have is the wrath of God. Quite an interesting thing to, to end with, actually. The wrath of God, that, the, that God is wrathful towards all sin. He requires payment, as I already said. He will pour out his wrath on all unrighteousness forever, forever. So the last thing we'll look at is the wrath of God. God hates Sin. And in all these attributes, we will, it will not be mentioned specifically or, or as, a, as a unique attribute, but we'll, we'll see the unity of God, the fact that God is one, that God is united, that he's a simple being. He's not made up of parts as we are. We have one head and, and two, two uh, hands, two feet. God is not made of one part love and one part holiness or one part knowledge. He is perfectly loving, meaning he is all love, he is all uh, knowledge, he is all wisdom. All that God is are these attributes. They are not parts of him, they are fully that. He is fully loving, fully knowing, fully good. So he lacks composition. He's a simple being, not a complex being, not made up of parts. God is one. He's united. So this will be implicit in, in the whole study as we look at the, the different attributes because we need to understand that even though we, we, we uh, put them in different attributes, they are not parts of God. That's, it is God, the, the whole of God are these attributes. And then, of course, there are many attributes that I have not mentioned that you're probably thinking about something that, that you can read about in systematic theology books or other books like the grace, mercy, and long-suffering, jealousy, the will of God, the blessedness of God, the glory of God. Or if you read, um, what's his name, Arthur Pink's book, he talks about the solitariness of God, he talks about... Um, 
the foreknowledge, the decrees of God. All those things are, of course, attributes of God. But for the sake of, of, uh, of time, we'll, 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 I, had, I have to make a, 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 a limit somewhere. I have to choose some attributes. So these might be mentioned in other attributes. But do understand that even though I don't mention, there are still, of course, attributes of God. God is a gracious God. We know that. We, of all people, should know that. And God is a, is a long-suffering God. God has all glory and so on. Now, I don't want to just stand here and give you a lecture. We're, we're a church. This is a, this is a sermon. This is a Sunday service. It's not a lecture. So we're going to, before we end, turn to the Bible. Because I, 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 know you, I see you all have your Bibles with you and you're just sitting there like, why is he not turning to the Bible? What is wrong with him? We're a Bible church. Why is he standing up there? So let's turn to the Bible and, and, and look at the, the question of who God is. Like, let's look at that with the experience of, uh, from two persons of, of faith, two giants of faith. Let's first look at the example of Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. Let's, let's understand a little bit about Moses' first experience with God. You know who Moses was. He was the, uh, the son of a Hebrew. Uh, when they, the Israelites were in Egypt, they were in bondage under the cruel Pharaoh. The Pharaoh had said that every single male born, born child must be killed. And so his parent hid him, and then they put him in a, in a basket, put it in the river. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter. He was adopted by her, brought up, and eventually had to flee because he killed a guard, a guard that was, that was punishing a, a Hebrew slave, and he, he killed the guard, and then it was discovered. So he had to flee. And there, that's where we pick up this thing. He flees out into the wilderness. He meets a, a priest, Midian, called Jethro, and he, he marries his daughter and becomes a, a, a shepherd for his, his father-in-law. So chapter 3, verse 1, we'll pick up there. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jephro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Then the Lord saw, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face. For he was very, he was afraid to look at God. Let's end there. So we see in this text, 
Moses' first encounter with God, the first time he approaches God. And we know from the rest of the Pentateuch that that Moses would become a a leader of, of the people of Israel. He would have many encounters with God. He would be the one who went up on the mountain to receive the two tables of the law, the commandments, the Ten Commandments. He would be the one who talked to God and to whom God talked back. He was the one who who, who was the spokesperson for the children of Israel. He, He was the mediator of the law, as it is called in the New Testament. So this is his first encounter. This is the first time Moses encounters God, the first time he has an experience with God. And he has that experience in a, by seeing a burning bush. And the bush doesn't burn up. It, caught, it, it catches his interest. Why doesn't the bush burn up? What is happening here? I must go and see it. And when he approaches it, it starts speaking to him. God is there. God is there in the burning bush. God calls to Moses in verse 4. Moses, Moses. And he responds, here I am. Now the the sheer fact that, that Moses is speaking to a bush that is burning and is not being consumed is strange enough. But it's not only saying his name. He's ordering him to take off his sandals, his shoes from his feet. And we know that when you walked in the wilderness, when you walked among, among sharp rocks or among dangerous creatures, there might be snakes, there might be, um, what are they called? Scorpions, exactly right. You need to have something to protect your feet. It's, it's going to be, you're going to wear down your feet very quickly in the wilderness. It's, it's not a good place for, for your feet to be. You need to protect them. But God says, take off your sandals. Because the ground on which you stand is holy. Holy. It's a wilderness. It's not a, 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 a golden palace. It's not a street of gold. It's not a sea of glass. It's the wilderness. Rocks, snakes, scorpions, sand. The ground is holy. God is there. Now it's not recorded, but at this instance, when the bush, or God says to Moses through the bush to take off his shoes, you can see Moses Shivering. He's very afraid. Who is this? Who is talking to me? Who are you, God? You can see he's just trying to get his sandals off and he's probably shaking so much that he's, he's failing multiple times. He tries to and then he finally catches, gets it off and throws it away. Oh, Lord, who are you? Who, what, what is happening here? There's a fire and the bush doesn't burn up. It's not consumed. It's Telling me, it knows my name, it's telling me to take off my shoes. Who are you, God? And God responds, verse 6. I am 
the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What is Moses' response to this? He hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses has never known God. He, knew, he grew up in, the, in Pharaoh's palace. He, he was the, the adopted son to Pharaoh's daughter. He was not raised up in a, in a, in a home where they talked about the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He did not know God. But in this instance, when God appears to him, he knows immediately, this is the God of my fathers. He is afraid. And what impact did this encounter have? This first encounter of God, when Moses for the first time sees or, or, and, and hears God, what impact did it have? Well, we know, again, that he became the leader of a great nation, of a vast multitude of people, of all the sons and daughters of Israel. He was given the task to lead them out of Egypt, out from bondage, maybe the greatest task ever given to a created human being, to lead God's people out of Egypt. We see that in verse 10. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. This encounter with God, knowing who God is, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, this changed him from a shepherd, someone wandering in the wilderness, to a leader. God's people. So that was Moses' first experience. Let's look at another one from New Testament. Go to Acts, book of Acts, chapter 9. We'll look at Paul's conversion in Acts, chapter 9. Or Saul, as he's called there, in Acts, chapter 9. And we'll read from verse 1. Six verses, verse one to verse six. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up. And enter the city, and I will, and it will be told what you must do. Let's end there. Saul, as we know, was a 
very strict law-abiding Pharisee. He uh, opposed Christians vigorously. He, he hated the Messiah of the Christians. The one they say was the Messiah of God, the promised Messiah. It tends to be missed how much of an, an, an enemy Paul actually was, or Saul as he is called here. The Bible says he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. You know Stephen, one of the first martyrs who was stoned to death. Paul or Saul was in hearty agreement. He was not just saying, hmm, yes, maybe, but he was in hearty agreement. He was standing there, stone him, stone him, stone him. Saul was a hater of the Christians, of the disciples of the way, as they're called here. He began to ravaging the, the church. He entered houses. He dragged off men and women to be thrown into prison. He is your equivalent of a, of a Gestapo officer. He hated Christianity. He hated the Messiah of the Christians. Now, how could he be such a, such a fierce enemy to Christ and to his church? Did he not, did he not know scripture? We know that, that Moses was not brought up in a household where the scripture was, was read. But, but Saul, he was a Pharisee. He knew the scriptures. He was taught by, by Gamaliel, the, a very known rabbi. He sat at his feet. He, if anyone knew what the, what the scripture said, of course he knew. It was not that. Or did, not, did he not know the promises of the Messiah? Did, had he somehow missed all those promises given in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah? Very unlikely. Very unlikely considering that in this time when Israel was, uh, was under the Roman occupation, one of the most heated topics or the most discussed topic in that time was the Messiah of the Lord. Who is he? When is he coming? What is he going to do? What are the promises of the Messiah? Saul obviously knew what the promises were. were. So why then did he persecute believers? Why did he become such a, a fierce enemy? What had he missed? Let's, let's quickly turn to Paul's own Explanation in Philippians chapter 3. Turn there if you will. We'll read verses 4 through 8. What he has to say about himself. Philippians chapter 3 verse 4. And we'll begin in the middle of a sentence here. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh. He's talking about Judaizers. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh... I far more circumcised the eighth, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to seal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view 
of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus or in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul did not know Christ. Paul did not know the Lord. He did not know God. He did not know God. Who God is. Go back to Acts 9, if you will. Saul is traveling to Damascus. He's He's, uh, he has letters from the high priest, the highest elected official in Israel, to bring Christians to justice, to, to have them thrown into prison, to be tried, and which meant either to, to recant or to die. But what happened? Verse 3 and, and forward. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord stopped Saul dead in his tracks. You shall not pass. You might know that reference from a very popular book and movie. You shall not pass, said the Lord Almighty. Saul, Saul, again he uses, he says the name twice, as with Moses. Moses, Moses, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Saul, trembling, falls to the ground. He can only utter the following words. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Saul did not know who the Lord was. He did not know whom he was persecuting. He did not know God. And the answer was, as we read, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told what you must do. So this, the things that Saul must do, was to go into the world, to preach Christ crucified, to plant churches, Start the greatest missionary movement among the Gentiles in history. Paul, Saul or Paul went to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. We are those Gentiles. We are those non-Jews. Because Saul got to know who God is. We have the fruit of that. So if these two great heroes of the faith, Moses and Paul, did not know who God was, who he is, when faced with the internal God, Yahweh only could respond with these words, who are you, God? Who are you, Lord? Then I'm sure we all recognize how vastly important it is for us to know who God is. Who are you, God? That will be the theme for the whole of this series. Let's keep that in mind as we study the attributes of God. 
Let's end with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the word that you has kept to us, the knowledge of you that you have revealed to us, the fact that we have the ability to study who you are, to get to know who you are, that we as, as a people can, can have the privilege of saying, this is God. This is who God is. Lord, we thank you for this enormous privilege. We thank you that you have given us so much ability, so much material, your own word, so that we can know who you are. Lord, please transform us and change us as we study who you are, as you transform uh, Moses and Paul into being two of the greatest heroes of the faith that ever lived, we might in the same sense become useful as they are to your people. Help us, Lord, to, to remove all those faulty understandings of you, who you are, and form biblical knowledge of you that we become more like you. Lord, we ask these things that your name may be glorified in Jesus' precious name. Amen.